You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Have some exciting news and some disappointing news about our Ruth message last week. Uh, exciting news, notes are online. So if you go to our website, you can see all the notes. So for those of you that missed last week, disappointing news. Uh, there was some trouble with it getting recorded, so you're not going to be able to listen to it. But follow along in the notes and you can know what's going on. We are in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. It's not just a chick flick, guys. It is a book written for both men and women. It's a a book of pain. It's a book of trials. It's a book of tragedy. It's a book of loyalty. It's a book about change. It's a book about new beginnings. It's a book about love. It's a book about faith. And more than that, it's a book of hope and the hope of redemption, of a life that seems like they've come to the end and how there is redemption and hope through God. Now, today we're going to talk about a passage that is often skipped. When it comes to Bible commentaries, they will mention a thing or two, try to avoid the conversation because there's so many questions about what today actually means. In fact, it's one of those chapters when you wonder, what are the spiritual truths out of this chapter? Uh, We're going to dive into this chapter as we read through Ruth. And I want you to realize um, all of scripture is inspired by God. That, That means that every bit of it What we have has been God-breathed. And kind of here's the backstory, a little bit previously on Ruth, the rewind to Ruth. In chapter 1, there's a woman named Naomi whose husband uh, decides that it's best to leave the land of promise and go to the land of compromise, and they move to Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem. So they move for a job opportunity, they move for provision, they move for economic reasons to Moab, which is a place which is primarily the homeland of their enemies. Well, while they're there, their two sons marry two women, Uh, not two women each, just one woman apiece. So the two sons each marry a woman. And while they're there in a place called Moab, over the course of about 10 years, uh, Naomi's husband dies and the two sons of Naomi die leaving her alone with her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and uh, Ruth. So these two women are encouraged by Naomi to go back home. Go back to your parents in Moab. There's nothing left for me. They're left destitute. Understanding the culture in this, that when when a husband dies, all of the belongings went back to his family. So if you were a widow, if you were a woman, you were left with nothing. So Naomi says, I have nothing, you have nothing, go back home, begin a new life. Orpah says, I love you, kisses her goodbye, but Ruth says, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to live where you live, I'm going to die where you die, your God will be my God, we are in this together through thick and thin. So Ruth and Naomi head back home to Naomi's hometown, kind of a prodigal son story. She walks into Bethlehem, bitter and angry because her life is washed up, chapter 1. In chapter 2, Ruth realizes that they need to eat. So uh, she goes out just randomly into the the town of Bethlehem and stumbles across a field, and she begins to ask if she can glean off the field. Now, gleaning is where you pick up the leftovers of everything that's left behind by the farmers. So basically, she is uh, gleaning, picking up the leftovers of what are left. It's a biblical principle. We talked about that last week, about how you, you don't use everything you have, but you leave enough for generosity to be given to those around you. So she's gleaning, and little does she realize that here comes riding in on a horse is the owner of the land, and his name is Boaz. Boaz was a wealthy man. This was his land, his property, 
and he is really taken to her. And he, uh, he allows her to have more than just the leftovers. He instructs his own workers to leave stuff behind, leave the best of the best behind for her to go. And he begins to feed her and take care of her and begins to send her home with money to her mother-in-law. And a budding relationship takes place. That's chapter 2. Well, she gets home and she says, you'll never guess what happened. And Naomi's like, well, something good because look at all this food. And she says, well, I stumbled across this land of a guy named Boaz. And she goes, it's not just any guy. Naomi says, he's actually someone who's in our family line. That means he's he's in the family line of my dead husband and of your dead uh, husband. He's in his family line and, and he has the possibility of saving our lives from destitution. Well, that's how chapter two ends. Today, we're gonna pick it up in chapter three. Um, Now, I want you to realize that that in order to understand the book of Ruth, there are some assumptions you have to know. The writer assumes that you know certain things about their culture because in their culture, there's just certain things that are just known that we kind of like somewhat know a little bit about. But I want to hit three important concepts if we're going to move forward in Ruth. And the first one is this. The first one is that there is a tradition that a woman never asks a man out. And a woman is never supposed to ask a man to marry her. All right, that just didn't happen in Bible days. I mean, it happens a little bit now. I mean, you might know of a girl uh, that asks a guy out, you know, and we're not, we're a little bit more used to that, but we're not, we're not real common with women asking men to marry them. It does happen because men are lazy butts and they never, you know, they never pull out the, the commitment card and they're just all scared. So the wife, you know, the girlfriend's like, hey, you know what, do this or I'm out of here. You know, that whole, you know, get out of the restroom or, Take a dump, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, that's terrible. My wife's going <laughs> to, she's going to get on to me about that one. Hey, just rewind that. <laughs> Here's the deal. There's, men are just kind of like slow at moving, so sometimes women have to light a fire under them, right? Well, that's still odd for us, for a woman to ask a man to marry her. Well, go back a few thousand years, and it was unheard of. I'm thinking, in fact, if you just go back to the 30s, you ever heard of Sadie Hawkins? There was a cartoon in the 30s called Little Abner, and it was about a bunch of hillbillies. And uh, in that cartoon, there was a girl named Sadie Hawkins, and she was considered the most homely girl in all the hills. And nobody ever wanted to, to know her, be with her, or talk with her, or take her out. So her dad came up with a plan, a yearly race where the men would run and the women would chase them. And whoever the woman caught he was obligated to marry that woman. So that was his plan to get his, his little, you know, Sadie Hawkins married. Well, she could never catch that man. Well, maybe you've heard of the Sadie Hawkins dance. Some schools will have a Sadie Hawkins dance. That's basically a school dance where the girl asks the guy. That comes from that little Abner cartoon of the 30s. And that was such a big deal in the 30s because a girl chasing a guy, asking a guy out or saying, I'm going to marry you, is even in the 30s way out of line for culture. Again, go back 3,000 years. It was never even thought of as acceptable. That's the first thing you need to realize is that one person uh, could only uh, do that, and that was primarily the man. Here's the second. There was a tradition and there's a custom. The custom is this. It's known as the kinsman redeemer, also known as the guardian redeemer, and also known as the family Redeemer, And here's the principle of the kinsman redeemer that the reader, uh, that the writer assumes you know. 
We talked a little bit about it last week. I want to talk a little bit more this week because it's kind of the the basis of this week's. And that is that there's a concept. This is the concept is that a blood relative could buy back but what was lost in the midst of a tragedy or pain. That means a kinsman redeemer could literally buy back land that belonged to the family. He could set free a slave to another lender. He could bring justice to someone's family name after they had already died, or they could bring you into a family to someone who was homeless if it was tragically lost. Now, there's a sense that the kinsman redeemer was this custom that was treasured, honored, and even challenged to do in Deuteronomy. It's kind of a biblical principle as well as an embellished custom. Now, here's the background of that idea. You're like, why, why is there a kinsman redeemer process? Well, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they moved into what is now known as Israel. And that land became Israel because it was the land of the descendants of Israel, whose name was Jacob. Basically, they moved in and they said, all right, this land is going to be ours. And then they said by tribes, they gave them regions. And then by family, they gave them areas. And then by land, uh, by, uh, by individual family names, uh, they gave them lots, okay? So that lot had to stay in the region of that tribe. Every piece of property in that land had to stay in the family because it's not like, you know, someone from Benjamin could move into Judah and go, I'm going to buy this land now. No, because all of this region belongs to Judah now. So you couldn't just buy and sell land, but you could have a principle of leasing land. That means you could sell it for a, for a temporary or let them pay rent on it for temporary. And there's what's known as the year of Jubilee. Now, follow me. I know I'm giving you a lot of information. The year of Jubilee is every seven years, regardless of your financial state, everything went back to the owner. Okay? So, like, if you leased out your property and or, or you cannot afford to get it back or you lost it or you had to give it over to another clan or another member, it always, every seven years, went back to the tribe. Always went back to the family and you got it back. Without that seven-year jubilee, uh, you could never get it back except through a kinsman redeemer. He was the only one that could get it back for you. Now, if you're a widow and you lost land, you never got it back because a widow could marry off to someone in another tribe or another family, another name, and that land had to stay with the family. So when Naomi's husband died, she wasn't getting that land. It had to go back to that family. Right? That's according to their custom. Now, here's the deal with the uh, kinsman redeemer. He was the only one who could get it back or get it back early. A kinsman redeemer had three qualifications. He had to be a blood relative, the closest to you, and he had to be able. That means he had to be wealthy enough to be able to afford that property. And three, he had to be willing. Okay, These are three requirements of the kinsman redeemer. And the only thing worse than being a woman in that culture was to be a widow without a son because that means you had nothing, you were destitute, and if you were an older woman without a son, you had no future. But Ruth and Naomi are both widows without a son, and a kinsman redeemer could turn a widow into a wife and turn someone who had nothing into somebody who has everything. So the kinsman redeemer plays a really important part in this chapter. The third custom is this. It's, it's a sign. And that is the sign, what 
I'll call is the, the road to Emmaus sign. Uh, and that is in Luke 24, after, you, maybe you've heard this story, usually during the uh, Easter time, uh, after Jesus uh, was buried and rose again from the dead, his disciples, before they saw him risen from the dead, were super depressed. You can imagine. Well, Jesus shows up on this path on a road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples, and he spends the whole afternoon with them, talking to them, going from Moses through all the prophets, going through the entire scriptures, telling them about how the Messiah is in all these books and how they're all a sign of him. And then at the end of that conversation, he reveals himself and he disappears. It's a pretty amazing story. But that road to Emmaus tells us a couple of things. It says that the Old Testament is a sign of the Messiah. So we're going to find out here that there's a secret in the book of Ruth and that the Old Testament writers didn't know this. And even some of the New Testament writers didn't understand this until Jesus said it but that the Old Testament screams out the life of Jesus. There are pictures and types of Jesus all through, and we're going to find a big one today. All right, so here we go. Chapter 3, a really weird story, a story that's often skipped and left out. Let's jump in. It's been two or three months. Ruth has been gleaning off the land, and Boaz has been very nice to her, uh, but there's no romance. There's no, there's no budding relationship. There's no second date. As we saw in chapter 2, there's kind of a date where he invited her to come over and sit at the table, and they had dinner and uh, lunch in front of everybody. It was, like, it was like a group date, right? But there was no second date. Up to two to three months, harvest time is over. Uh, her time of gleaning is coming to an end. So she's either going to have to make some sort of change in her life and uh, figure out what to do. But Naomi hatches a plan, and this is it. Ruth 3, verse 1. One day... Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. That's, that's Jewish mother translation for you need a husband. Time to get married. Okay? All right, it's been three months. You need to figure out what's going to happen with you. And so now Boaz, she said, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. All right? She said, Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, winnowing barley is when you thresh the barley. We talked about this last week. You, you beat these barley stalks and uh, the grains fall off. Well, winnowing is where you pick up these big piles of barley and you throw them up in the air while the wind's blowing and it blows out all the dust and the grains fall back down. All right, so the chaff is blown away. So there's this sense it's the end of the season and this giant pile of barley, which is a community area, they take turns. This is his night. This is the official end of the barley harvest season. And he's out there winnowing. It's an all-day event, you know, 100 and 100 pounds of barley being winnowing, chaff getting blown away. And she says, all right, big night tonight. She says he's going to be there. Could be your last opportunity to see him with a purpose or see him or to winnow there or, or to glean or this is your last chance. So says tonight he'll be winnowing. It's the end of the harvest. Here's your chance. So she says this, wash. I like that. Take a bath, put on some perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. That's a good strategy if you're trying to get someone's attention. Now, this is not about being seductive. It's about being someone who's looking your best. So uh, guys, don't expect to, to get a date if you don't have a bath. And if you don't smell good, and if you look like you just woke up, this goes for both guys and gals. All right, so she dolled up. Time to move on. No more mourning. This is basically saying, all right, your husband's dead. My son, your husband is dead. He's gone. You're single. Uh, you need to start smelling better. All right, 
Because you, no one's going to ask you to marry you if you are just daily looking and feeling and, you know, like you're in dumpers all the time. So she says this, uh, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, this does not mean wait till he's drunk. It just means wait till the work is done and they've had a time to relax and he's in a good mood. I always tell couples, don't argue when you halt. Just halt if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Don't argue, halt, if one of those four things are going on. So, you know, like I've had, I taught that one day, and one guy raised his hand and said, what if I'm like that all the time? <laughs> well, this is one of those moments where he said, she said, halt, wait till he's in a good mood. Uh, this is not about seduction. Wait till he's in a good mood. When he lies down, take the note of where he is lying. Basically, this, I love this. She's like, make sure you keep your eye on him and see where he lies down. Don't pick the wrong guy. You know, because she's about to say something and you're going to go over there to him and, and he may have his head covered. Don't do this to the wrong guy. Guys, girls, guys, listen. Don't pick the wrong guy. Don't pick the wrong girl. I like, this is good motherly advice right here. Make sure you keep your eye on the one that God has called you to be with and don't pick the wrong person or the wrong kind of person. So she says, keep your eye on him and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. All right, now this is interesting. This is often debated because people want to know what does that mean? What does it mean? And some guys, they just read it, move on. It's like uncover his feet. Some thinks it means to make a sexual advance. Some think that it means that, uh, that it doesn't mean his feet. It means uncover his body. And it means, uh, some will say that it means see if he's circumcised, but she's a Moabite. She doesn't care, right? So this is not a sexual thing because we're going to find out in context of the type of woman that Ruth is. This is not a, a move of seduction, which is important. But I will ask a question is, why not just a friendly conversation? You know, why the uncovering of the feet? Why this, this innuendo move, you know? Uh, why is there something, is this a sexual maneuver? What's going on here? Some say it, it is a kind of a, an innuendo, a euphemism for revealing his body. And some say it just means to uncover his feet. Um, uh, and then the feet do not mean sex. Well, I tend to believe that it doesn't mean sex, and I'll tell you in just a moment why. Now, for Naomi to encourage Ruth to commit such an act of immorality is completely counter to the character of Ruth and Naomi. It was a sin in the Old Testament to have sex before marriage, just like it is in the New Testament. And as we're going to find, Naomi is someone who loved and trusted God, and Ruth is someone who loved and trusted God. And they, they, you know, Naomi would not encourage her daughter to do something that would put her in an immoral position or to cause her to look, uh, you know, um, uh, like like some sort of you know, loose woman in, in relation to the community. This is, this is not what is happening here. We're going to explain this a little bit more because there's a lot of different uh, reasons why people feel this way. Um, but there are a lot of people that feel this is absolutely a sexual move, okay? Going on, we're going to talk about it. It says, so he went, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now, I love this. She, she got all cleaned up. She got, uh, she picked uh, one of her two favorite dresses. Okay, she's 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 poor. She's destitute. She she gleans for a living. You know, she basically picks up leftovers and 
And uh, so it's not like she probably has a, a nice prom dress or a nice dress or an evening gown or, or some nice outfit. Uh, she had to pick the best of what she had. She cleaned herself up. She put on some perfume. She smelled nice. Another word for that is she anointed herself. There's this sense, you know, of just kind of letting, letting herself smell good. And there's a picture of the Holy Spirit there. And so she, she anoints herself and she puts on her, her best clothes. And, and, and he says, don't, Naomi says, don't tell him that you're there. So I imagine this. Here's the event. All afternoon. All right. There's the threshing floor. There's the winnowing. There's the laughing. There's the friends. There's the celebration of the end of the harvest. And it's a night of celebration. And, and here's Ruth. You know, he, she said, don't let him know you're there. So she's kind of, you know, I mean, her heart's got to be beating out of her chest, and she's she's uh, she's wondering, what am I doing? Is this crazy? You know, uh, her heart is is going crazy. She's she's uh, following him. She's watching him. She's hiding from him, and then it happens. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits or in a good mood, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Now, this was probably late at night because you do the celebration after the winning is all done, and that's an all-day event. So it's late, and he goes to lay down. He's in a good mood. It's been a good season, been a good harvest, and he uh, goes to sleep. Ruth quietly approaches. He's sleeping. Now, I left my blanket at home, so I had to borrow one from KidVenture, and I think it's got a stain on it, so this will be real interesting. Put the non-stain on this side. All right, this could be one of your child's stains. All right, so... (laughs) He's laying there, all right? I'm going to see if I can do this and you guys can see me. He's laying there, and he's uh, got this thing going on with the blanket, and she's instructed by Naomi to uncover his feet. Now, he doesn't have shoes on. You know, he's got sandals, maybe barefoot. And so she uncovers his feet, and she does exactly what Naomi says, and she lays down next to him. Okay. Now, I want you to realize this is that this is not a, you know, uncovering of him and, you know, and this is a, I believe this is exactly what it says. She uncovered his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're in bed and, and your feet get uncovered, uh, you generally wake up, right? So I think this was a subtle instruction to wake him up, get his attention. And what, and what Ruth is about to say is beyond what Naomi said for her to do, Okay. This goes beyond the instructions of Naomi. I believe Ruth is totally inspired by the Lord. This is one of the most beautiful will you marry me moments in the Bible, and it's from a woman. So she uncovers his feet, and then the Bible says he's startled and wakes up. All right, so that's kind of the intention of that. So can you imagine (laughs) this event here? This, By the way, this is a description, not a prescription. All right, this is not how you, hmm, how do I get him to marry me? Uh, let's watch a movie. And then he falls asleep and you uncover his feet. I didn't work. It's not going to work. This is not a plan. This is nothing immoral. This is not her trying to make the moves on him while he's some drunk or something. This is not the intention, though some have tried to lead it that direction. We're going to find that it's not that based upon their conversations. All right, this is important. Because a lot of people try to discredit this event. Let me tell you something. The Bible is raw. Okay, the Bible doesn't hold back the, the, the weaknesses of its characters. 
all right? If there's one there, the Bible is blunt about it. If there's not one, let's not read one into it. So this is something that is important to understand. So in the middle of the night, something startled him. Uh, yeah, um, there's a body and your feet are uncovered. So he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Now, some of you junior hires, this is like a dream come true. Waking up with a woman at your feet. Some of you guys are like, oh, or some of you, it's a, it's a nightmare because you're scared of women still. So I, I don't know. So there's a woman lying at his feet and he says, who are you? You know, it's dark. Who are you? What's, what's going on? And you, you know, and she says, I'm your servant, Ruth. Now the word servant there is different than all the other times she said servant because the word servant there means available servant. Okay. It's important. She goes, I am your servant. She said, and she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family or the kinsman redeemer of our family. Now, can you imagine the kids saying, so how did you guys like propose to each other? <laughs> could you imagine trying to tell that story? Well, son, it's like this. Um, she uncovered my feet. And I said, who are you? And there's this like, you, wait a minute. Now you tell us not to, not to take naps with each other. And you guys are like, like taking a nap together. Now it's important to know they're grown adults. He's, he's, he's older in years than she is. She's probably in her mid thirties and it's a possibility that he was either in his uh, upper forties or even possibly fifties. And there was a, a little age gap here. And, and so she wakes him up and she says, one of the more odd things in the Bible, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer. Now, this is not a sexual advance. Some people will say that this means that he's covered up and she says, spread your garment over me means to basically reveal yourself and let's do it and get married. Okay, that's exactly what a lot of people in the commentaries will try to tell you. And some will tell you the opposite of what they'll, they'll agree with me. It's, it's kind of split on this. And I believe the character of both of them dictates what the, what the idea here is. If we isolate verses, we can kind of come to a sexual innuendo. But if we look at the whole of the story, we find that it's not sexual at all. It's actually quite amazingly beautiful because this is basically an invite for him to marry her. It's Ruth asking Boaz, will you marry me? Now, I want you to hear this. This is actually the second time this phrase is spoken in Ruth. We already read it. This whole uh, spread the corner of your garment over me has already been spoken. In Ruth chapter one, when Boaz first meets Ruth, he says, uh, you are such a blessing to your mother. It blows me away. May the Lord honor you. And then he prays for her in Ruth chapter one. And he says this, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done for your mother-in-law. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And he says, whose wings you have come to take refuge. That word wings and garment are the exact same words. So he says, whose garment, I love this, whose garment you have come to take refuge. And then when she comes and says, spread the corner of your garment over me, it's as if she's saying, spread the corner of your wings over me, since you are my redeemer. Guys, listen, when Ruth says, I'm your servant, spread your garment over me, she's saying, cover me, protect me, provide for me, marry me. She says, uh, since you are that redeemer, she's, Ruth is saying, you know what? That prayer that you prayed over me, you are that answer to prayer, Boaz. You are that answer of prayer. You are the answer of God covering and caring for me. You are that person. Will you cover and carry 
and cover and, and, and care for me. She says she pulls herself under his wing. She puts herself under his wing and says, will you marry me? And Or basically, some would even say that he was kind of asking her to marry him in chapter 1. We'll say, may the Lord bring someone into your life to care for you. And then for the rest of the three months, he does nothing but care for her. Some would say that he, in his age, was maybe not uh, as, as open and honest about his relationship, and he was making an, a, a small hint that he would love to redeem her or marry her. And at this point, she's saying, yes, I will marry you. Will you marry me? You're an answer to prayer. So we see this in his answer because in verse 10, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He says, he says this is kindness greater than that which you showed earlier. He says, man, your kindness to Naomi and your faithfulness to look out for her, man, this is even more amazing. He says, because you could have picked any guy in Moab and you could have come in here and you could have picked someone richer, someone younger, but yet because of your love for Naomi and because of your love for me, you chose me. He says, uh, he says you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now my daughter, he says, don't be afraid. For I will do for you all you ask. He says, yes, yes, I want to marry you. He says, absolutely, I want to marry you. And he says, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of, guys, listen, noble character. And that right there, we know is why that's not a sexual advance moment. She's not trying to make the moves on him. She's not trying to seduce him. That uncover his feet is not an innuendo to uncover his body. This cover me with your wings is not a sense of, hey, jump on top of me, which is uh, what a lot of people would say. He's saying, you know what? Everybody knows, me included, you are a woman of noble character. Now, guys, listen, this is a story that happened in the middle of the book of Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, this book is not placed after Judges. This book is placed after the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs 31 has a beautiful chapter called the Proverbs 21 chapter, or 31 woman, it's what we call it. And uh, that Proverbs 31 woman talks about a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character who is a hard worker, who is a woman of character, who's a woman who's, whose family sings of her praises, a woman who is tenacious, who cares for her children, who cares for her husband, who loves Jesus. This, this Proverbs 31 woman is just unfolded. It's a beautiful passage. And then, boom, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth, the story of a woman of noble character. See, Ruth, her story is not a woman of desperation and seduction. This is a beautiful woman of noble character. It's almost as if Proverbs 31 says, yeah, you want to see a story about that woman? Boom, Ruth. In the time of the judges, there was this woman named Ruth. And that gives this wonderful story of a woman who lived a pure moral life who God honored and blessed. So all is noble here. It is though very subtle. It is very strategic and all is righteous. So this is what happens, but there's a problem because it doesn't end with, and they live happily ever after. This is what happens. Verse 12, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer of your family, of our family, there is another. Cue soap opera music. Dun, dun, dun. There is another. Turn to the mirror. Turn to the, everybody look at the camera. You know, it's like the moment where you look at the camera. Cut to scene, see you next week, right? There is another, one who's more closely related than I. That means he's first in line to redeem you. I'm not 
the person who can legally do this. He goes, I am in your family, but I'm not the person who can legally pick. He goes, "Uh, so stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, uh, let him redeem you. He says, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to argue. He says, but if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. He says, if he doesn't, you know, I've got to respect the custom. I've got to respect that he has that legal right, and I will let him do that. But if he doesn't want to, honey, you know we will be married as soon as possible. I will do it. And then he says, lie here till morning. Basically, he's saying, imagine. I want you to imagine the both of them. After an event like that, and they're like, okay, now go to sleep. You know, it's not one of those things. You're like laying in bed all night. You know, you're thinking about it. You're playing it over and over. You're you're saying, could I have said things different? What's going to happen? Lying there all night, Ruth, wondering, praying. She's thinking, I mean, literally, she's thinking, tomorrow, I'm going to find out who my husband is. And I want you to put yourself in the, in the position of Boaz for a minute, uh, a minute. His character was such that though he was sitting there under the stars of this beautiful night, looking into the eyes of a woman who he loved, a beautiful woman who smelled oh so good and who was ready to give her life to him, he sees the stars in her eyes and yet he does not take advantage of her. He does not uh, take advantage of the opportunity uh, he is a person of noble character because he respects her and honors her. And though she has put him in that position, he says, I respect you enough to not make advances on you and know that the Lord will work our relationship out. This is a cool moment. Guys, this is the kind of man you need to be. This is the kind of man, women that you need to look for, one who respects you, who doesn't take advantage of you, who doesn't take advantage of the moment, you know, uh, in a car, in a van, uh, in, in, in a living room, uh, taking a nap, whatever. He says he was a man of noble character. So verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning. And this is important too. She wasn't like cuddled up next to him. They weren't like, you know, spooning, you know. It wasn't like they were just all cuddled and sharing a blanket. No, she stayed at his feet, a place of respect and honor. He was st- close enough to where he could protect her but also um, far enough to it that there wouldn't be any impropriety. And he says that no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's looking out for her reputation. He says, he also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it. And when she did so, he poured into his six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Uh, He's looking out for her provision. And then he went back to town to see if he could find this other guy. All right. Ruth and Boaz remain pure knowing God's timing had not come. Young person, there is a right time and a wrong time for intimacy. And Boaz knew it, and Ruth knew it, and God knows it for you as well. And that time is marriage. So we have this picture here. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked her, how did it go, my daughter? Basically, you know, in the Hebrew, you know what the literal word is, who are you? Or the, is, um, are, you, are you Boaz's family yet? Are you, are you still... Uh, Ruth the Moabite, basically saying, did you get married? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added this. This is important because the writer didn't tell us in the midst of the time with Ruth and Boaz, he tells us right here what Boaz said during that time. This is something that the author waited and ended the chapter with. He says this, and he added, he gave me, Ruth said, he gave me six measures of barley, saying, now, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty, 
handed. Now, this is amazing. You might not think much about this, but I want you, if you were here in week one, I want you to go back for a moment to Ruth chapter one, if you remember this. If not, I'm going to fill you in. She comes in. She lost her sons. She comes in. She she lost uh, her husband, and she's walking into her home, and her name is Naomi, and they said, hey, it's Naomi, and they said, no. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for I am bitter, because I left full with family, and now I'm coming back empty with nothing, with no one. And then here's Boaz, and we know that he knew this because in Ruth chapter 2, he says that he heard about that and that she had felt that she was empty. And I love this picture because Boaz is saying, recalling Naomi's empty comments, and he says, guys, he's saying, Naomi, listen, you don't have to worry anymore. He says, Naomi, I will care for you too. And I will provide for you. And I will make sure you are full. You are not empty. This is a beautiful commitment with Boaz, not just to Ruth, but to Naomi. And then Naomi says this, wait, my daughter. This is anticipation. Just wait until you find out what happens. She knew what this meant. She knew that Boaz was going to do whatever it took to make sure that she would never be empty again. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Scene, end of chapter 2. Now, here's what's interesting here. That's the last time we hear the voice of Naomi or Ruth. What happens in chapter 3 is a conversation between the kinsmen redeemers, and we get to see what happens in the marriage and all that, but we never hear their voices or hear their story. Chapter 3 closes with two women waiting on the Lord and we never hear their voice again. This is where the story shifts to women of destitution, to women of hope. And then all of a sudden, chapter four, the consummation of that hope. And and this is a cool picture because um, what we're gonna have next week is the conclusion of the story. And there's two women sitting at home waiting. So what's gonna happen? Well, guys, this story is not just a story to teach us about commitment. It's not just a story to teach us about dating, about being pure, about marriage. It's not, a, it's not just a story about friendship. It's not a story about commitment and provision. This story is in the Bible to teach us about Jesus Christ. Remember the third principle, the sign, the road to Emmaus sign? And there's this. Colossians 1.13 says, For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. Of sins. Guys, listen, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, our family redeemer. Jesus is that person. What is redemption? You guys ever heard of the word redemption before? We've been using it a lot with kinsman redeemer. Uh, redemption is a unique word because it is a financial term. And basically, re- uh, redemption means to free or deliver by paying a price. So when that kinsman redeemer pays off a slave's debt and sets them free or pays off the property of a land that has been lost or pays back a sense of justice for something that has been done to a family or pays back someone's destitution and purchases back them a future, Jesus is saying, guys, listen, that concept of redemption, that's what I have done for you. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has paid the price for us. He is our redeemer. He has made us valuable. 
Again, it's a money term. It refers to a debt being taken care of, being purchased out, a future bought back, a slave set free. All this was purchased for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. He goes, there's not a real financial exchange here with Jesus. He says, but the redemption is a different kind of redemption with Jesus. Jesus says, you were redeemed or bought back from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, not with silver and gold or money. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect. He says, this is a whole different kind of purchase. This is a purchase made with blood on the cross for us. What I want to do is I want to share with you the next few minutes. Uh, while Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, he's a picture of a better kinsman redeemer. I want to give you a few things about Jesus, the better Boaz. Jesus, the better Boaz. Here's the first thing is this, that Jesus is our redeemer by choice. Just as a kinsman redeemer must be willing, Jesus is more than willing to redeem you, more than willing. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what that joy that he saw was? It was you. It was your face. It was your kids. It was your marriage. It was your family. It was that joy of knowing that you could be in his family, that he endured the cross. It was by choice. We are born separated from God because of our sin. We are born in sin. We are born dead spiritually. But Jesus, God himself, stepped into this earth, stepped into our life by choice. He suffered. He was tempted. He felt pain. He even died to the point of experiencing every single moment of that pain for us by choice. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abram's descendants. Guys, listen, when the devil and a third of the, of the, of the angels were cast from heaven. Jesus didn't come up with a plan to redeem the angels. But as soon as Adam fell, he had a plan. And we read that in Genesis chapter 2. And that plan was Jesus. He says, this is crucial. He says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement or purchase or cover our sins, atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. When, when, when we are in our moment of sin, the word atonement means covering, he's paying for it. He says, you know, when you sin and you go to him and you say, Jesus, forgive my sin, he goes, I cover this, I got this. You ever been out to dinner with somebody and you go, I'll cover it, I got it, give me the check. Well, that's Jesus every time. You got sin? Jesus said, give me the check. I got it. I got this. Guys, listen. Jesus was not just God in a bod. He chose to leave heaven to kick up dirt, to redeem us. Guys, listen. He lived a life on this earth experiencing every transition of life. Guys, I, I said this yesterday at the, at the outreach. Jesus had to be potty trained. 
Jesus had to learn how to talk. Jesus experienced the pressure of being bullied and schoolwork and classes. He knows what it's like to go through puberty as a teenager. He knows the struggles and the temptations of being a young adult. And he knows the challenges and the stress of being a grown-up. Guys, listen, Jesus experienced every moment of our life by choice as our Redeemer. He walked in our shoes, kicked up the dirt that he created walked in the body of a person who he initially breathed life into and says, now I choose to do this, to experience every pain of those nails in my hands and feet to redeem us. Jesus is our redeemer by choice, which leads me to the second thing. Jesus paid the full price required for our redemption. While Boaz redeemed their physical life, Jesus fully paid the price that redeems all our life, both our physical and our spiritual life. John 19, 13 says, when he had received the drink, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Paid in full. Purchase complete. Bought back. It's as if when he said paid in full, he says, I got this. Purchase covered. Some of you guys might want to check out the sound. Make sure that they don't turn on the uh, promos if one of you can slip out. Guys, listen. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his life. The debt of sin was nailed to the cross, paid in full. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless. Guys, you can't pay for your sin. You can't. There's not a price that you are able to bring that will ever purchase the sin that you have committed. He says, Christ, however, while we were powerless, died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, every one of us in this room is in need of redemption. Every one of us in this room, we were born enemies of God. We were born dead in our sin. And just as Boaz says, hey, hold on, guys. I got this. I am willing. I will do this. I am the redeemer. Jesus says, no, I am the better Boaz. Colossians 2, verse uh, 13 and 14 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That's redemption. Which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Guys, listen, this is what redemption is. I got a passbook coupon book here. I mean, an entertainment coupon. All, this, uh, all these coupons, you guys ever get one of these? These are pretty amazing. There's coupons for everything, but usually not the things that you want, right? So you're, uh, you're going through this, and, and I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Look at this. Here's a, there's a, a burger at Burger King. This is a good coupon. I'm going to tear this out, and I think I'm going to try to use this at McDonald's. How do you think that's going to work at McDonald's? I'm going to walk into McDonald's, go say, hey, I've got this coupon. I want to redeem it right here for a hamburger at McDonald's. And some of you say, why would you want to go to McDonald's? Just go with me. All right. So he comes in. He says, here, I feel like this is good enough. I feel like this uh, will and should give me what I want. I am sincere. By the way, you can be sincerely wrong about your spiritual choices. It doesn't matter because the point is, is that no matter how sincere or how demanding or how much my heartfelt plea is, 
McDonald's will never accept this Burger King coupon. They will not redeem this coupon because it's only made valuable in the hands of its creator. In order for me to use this coupon, I'm going to have to go to Burger King and I'm going to have to say, do you accept this coupon? And they're going to look at it and go, of course, we're Burger King. We made these coupons. We want you. This worthless piece of paper everywhere else is valuable right here. Guys, listen, outside of your creator, your life is without value. Your life in many ways is somewhat worthless even because apart from Christ, this life is meaningless. And if you go to this religion or that one and try to find redemption, try to find value, you're just not going to find it. You're only going to be found valuable in the hands of the creator, the one who made you. He will take what seems to be valueless and make you valuable again because he bought this coupon. He printed these coupons and he dispersed these coupons. And guys, listen, that is what redemption is. It is putting our hands in the life of the, in the hands of the creator again. And he says, you know what? The world was done with you. Nobody else wants you. Nobody else will accept you. Nobody else sees you as anything more than just trash. But here in my house, you're valuable. You're important. And I love the concept of redemption because it tells us and it reminds us that God calls us valuable. And his own. Here's the third thing is that Jesus restores our lost inheritance. Ruth and Naomi became co-heirs with Boaz. His assets became their assets. The wife of a kinsman redeemer becomes the co-heir with her husband. Guys, listen, through Christ, we are made co-heirs and our inheritance is restored. Our inheritance of heaven is restored back to us through Christ. Romans 8, 17 says, Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, you may be someone who feels poor in this life, but in Christ, you have an inheritance that is greater than anything this world can offer you. Because in Christ Jesus, he restores our lost inheritance. Here's the fourth thing is that Jesus frees us from our slavery. Just as a kinsman redeemer is one of the only people that can actually free a slave out of indebtedness and actually lose the shackles of indebtedness, Jesus, our redeemer, breaks the chains of sin in our life. Look at Romans 6. It says this, 6, 6, it says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him on the cross so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Guys, listen, when you become a child of God, you don't have to be a slave to that addiction anymore. You don't have to be a slave to that depression anymore. You don't have to be a slave to those feelings of insecurity, and and you don't have to be a, a slave or in bondage or chained to those issues of your past. For Christ Jesus frees us from our slavery This is what he says in Titus. Uh, Titus says in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people. Guys, listen, God didn't just call you to be a Christian. He's called you to be holy. And this is something that's often missed in church. 
And that is, man, God saves us. But once he calls us his kid, he empowers us with a Holy Spirit to purify for himself a people. Because his salvation, his redemption breaks the chains of slavery to sin off of us. One more verse, and it's this. It says, um, Galatians 4, 4. It says, uh, but when he set, when, when the time had set, uh, he set had been fully come, God sent a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, buy back those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sons, bought back, freed, made a child of the king. He says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit calls out Abba, Father. The word Abba is Daddy. So you're saying, Daddy, Father, a, a, play, a role of respect, Father, and a role of intimacy, Daddy. He says, I call out Abba, Father, through the Spirit, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. Here's the last thing I want you to know. Jesus, the better Boaz, Jesus gives us a new relationship and a new future. Naomi and Ruth, are about to be given a brand new future. Their future looked bleak, but here comes Boaz the Redeemer. Far worse than that experience than Naomi and Ruth is to be separated from God. But here comes Jesus the Redeemer. John 1.11 says, He came, Jesus came, to that which was his own. That means creation, and his own did not receive him. They didn't realize it was the creator walking among them. But yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. I want you to realize something. Ruth did something. Ruth had to respond to the love of Boaz. She asked Boaz to redeem her. I want you to know this. The love of Jesus is great and generous. There are some of you that are not Christians, and God has shown his love to you. He has blessed you, provided for you, done wonderful things in your life that you give thanks to God for. But have you ever asked him to be your redeemer? As Boaz was sharing his love with Ruth, the family relationship did not begin until she invited Boaz to be her redeemer. Guys, listen, the same is with us. The love of Christ is extended. He provides, but his redemption is something that we must ask for. It's something we must receive. That is when you become a child of God. That is when you become family. So you're one of two people today. Number one, you've been spiritually gleaning picking up stuff here and there in church or around others, but it's time to become family. Or number two, some of you are family, but it's time for you to do what he says to do. One of the things that Naomi told Ruth, she says, when you go and ask him to redeem you, she says, I want you to do this. Do whatever he says. Guys, listen, our redeemer is asking you about things in your life. And will you do what he says? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are our Redeemer. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are the better Boaz. That, Lord, while, while the Boaz in the story is an honorable man of character and noble indeed, 
But, Lord, he's just a, a picture, a snapshot, a glimpse of a better Boaz. God, I thank you, Lord, that we can find forgiveness and grace in you and find mercy in you. And, Lord, I pray that we would take that moment. God, some people here have been gleaning off, off the harvest of God for years, but they've never become part of the family of God. They go to church, they attend, they sit in, they like, they learn something, but they've never become family. And, God, there's some here who are family, but they're not listening to the Redeemer. And, God, I pray that today we would all listen to you. That those of you that are gleaning, it's time to come to the Redeemer. He gives you a new future. Would you just take a moment right now and just talk to Jesus? Say, Jesus, here's my life. Here's, here's everything I'm going through. Here's, here's my struggles. Here's my pain. Lord, I, I don't understand everything, but I know that you can redeem. You can make me valuable. You can take what I think is a worthless life and a, wor- a life of chaos and confusion, and I'm trying my best to make it happen, but Lord, you take that and you make it valuable. Will you take a moment just to put your life in the hands of the Creator? God, here's my life. Here's my heart. Here's my sin. You purchased me on the cross. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that I am new in you. God, give us ears to hear your voice, to respond to your calling in our life, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.